What if you could simply trust all information on the internet? My name is Sebastian and I'm on the mission to build a trusted web for all of us on planet Earth. An internet where my parents, possibly my future kids and my own generation can find truth and feel safe. Because to save the world, we need to fix the internet. And in the Trusted Web podcast, I embark on a journey with you, my listener and thought leaders, to explore what needs to get done. In this episode, I'm joined by a very special guest. My guest and I share a very deep passion for a trustworthy internet, and his name is Andy Persons. Over the last decades, Andy has been a CTO of a dozen of companies, a founder of several companies, and a startup mentor. And since three years, Andy is a senior director at Adobe, overseeing its content authenticity initiative. In 2019, Adobe launched this content authenticity initiative with launching partners Twitter and the New York Times, where the idea was to establish what they call digital content provenance, which we will extensively discuss throughout this episode. Today, the initiative has over 800 members and full disclosure, Wordproof and the Trusted Web being two of them, among others like the Associated Press and Microsoft. Andy, welcome to the Trusted Web podcast and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Sebastian. It's a pleasure to be here. What did I miss? Fill in the blanks. It's an introduction about you, but yeah, can you tell a bit more about you and the Content Authenticity Initiative? Yeah, you did a pretty good job at the top level. Um, I think you know I'd highlight a couple of additional details. Um, you're right. I am, as my wife says, a glutton for punishment when it comes to startups and early stage companies. Um, I love those early days, uh, zero to 100 employees. Um, and I've done a lot of work uh, in the area of helping creative professionals do more work better, monetize their work more efficiently. And I've done that across lots of industries, including publishing way back in my early days as an entrepreneur in uh, photography. And now I have the great opportunity to rekindle relationships with some of those photographers who are facing the same kind of uh, career challenges that we know artists and journalists and storytellers of all kinds are facing. Um, and throughout that time, uh, I also practiced music here in New York City. So um, studied music in grad school and frankly, you know, have a personal sense of what it means to exist in a world where copyright is a large part of your livelihood. So the notion at Adobe that we could connect uh, ownership of content or generation of content with countering misinformation and, of course, uh, generative AI, which is coming at us very quickly, I'm sure we'll talk about those things kind of um, cemented a commitment and this opportunity Adobe presented itself. And over the past three years, we've done quite a bit of work to unify all of those concepts in a way that I think helps quite a large population of people. And you were with the initiative from day one, right? That's correct. I can't take credit for some of the basic ideas. So this idea was, I think if you rewind all the way to 2016, which is ancient history in you know, in, the, in this day and age, especially when it comes to AI and so-called deep fakes or cheap fakes. Um, there was a project launched and demonstrated at Adobe Max in 2016. Adobe Max is the yearly uh, coming together of creative professionals where a lot of new Adobe technologies, so-called Adobe Magic, is revealed and showed off. That year in 2016, a project called Project Voco was demonstrated. Um, and it was shown that with, you know, uh, shocking 20 minutes of training data, um, from Jordan Peele, the celebrity host that year, um, the engineer on stage from Adobe Research was able to manipulate his voice and his sentiment 
by typing text and uh, basically recreating Jordan Peele's voice in context in real time. And that kind of shocked the world. It probably wasn't the first time um, AI and learning models were used uh, in a creative or you know concerning way. I think anytime you have AI applied to creativity, you also have the corollary concerns about how it can be used in the wrong hands. So that really touched off years of thinking, I'd say from 2017 on about what Adobe's role could be um, in countering the bad effects while empowering the good effects of these very powerful technologies for creators. So again, I can't take credit for the foundational ideas. They had been marinating at Adobe for many years, but when it was time to activate a broad industry initiative, including human rights defenders, tech companies, governments, um, I was there uh, from day one. Yeah, and I applaud you for that. And I applaud Adobe for uh, taking the lead in this initiative. Um, what was the truly the vision at the time of launching the Content Authenticity Initiative? What was, uh, you told a bit, of course, about how it launched, but what was really the vision of how Kai could lead to, let's say, a trusted web? Yeah, and, you know, um, I'm pleased to say the vision hasn't changed much over three years. And again, three years in this ecosystem that we both inhabit is an eternity, right? Things are moving at light speed, I think accelerating, not decelerating in any way. And in 2019, when this was announced um, by Scott Belsky on stage at Adobe Max, um, a few years after that project Voco uh, project was revealed, the idea was twofold, really. One is um, given that Adobe and so many other technology companies and individuals and open source were producing these powerful tools for creativity, many but not all driven by artificial intelligence, um, how could we ensure that these could be deployed and used responsibly? And I'll come back to that in a second. The second aspect was, I think, in 2019 uh, here in the States, there was a seminal moment um, known as the Nancy Pelosi cheap fake, where the Speaker of the House of the U.S. government um, was faked in a very unsophisticated way. So frames of video were manipulated. Audio may have been slowed down. The clear intent uh, by a bad actor was to make her appear intoxicated or unwell while giving a speech in public. Um, you know, for many years, decades, I would say, it's been the case that we're all newscasters. There's no longer a two or three network set of trusted news sources. Um, and if we're all broadcasters, uh, you know, the president of the United States can sow disinformation. And we've seen examples of this. Yeah. World leaders can sow disinformation. Individuals with followers can sow disinformation or misinformation, right? Unwittingly sharing things that are untrue or intended to deceive. So we thought, look, is there a way that we can steer beyond the idea of detecting what's been manipulated and instead prove what's real at inception and won't that in fact potentially um, solve both problems which is number one enable people to use these powerful tools responsibly uh, empower good actors and number two over time if all media has some notion or trust signal as we call it won't it be effective against misinformation and disinformation um, and that was the vision to explore that with no preconceived notions um, to build a broad industry and worldwide coalition of folks who are interested in the topic of what we call content provenance, as you mentioned, um, and then to deploy it in Adobe tools. So that vision has stayed steadfast and, and focused uh, since the inception. And how, how far is it? Are there implementations in Adobe Project Chef? Absolutely. Yeah. So we're proud to have announced Photoshop over a year ago. So you'll find a feature called Content Credentials that will eventually roll out across the entire suite of Creative Cloud products at Adobe. But Adobe has many other businesses uh, where you also see this show up, including the um, Experience Cloud part of our business, 
where you'll find content management systems and media asset management systems that deal in the very media that advertisers, marketers, and news organizations use every day. There's also a massive business in digital video and audio. Um, but we started with imaging uh, because we are Adobe and Photoshop is a word and a product that's used synonymously with changing things and manipulating media. And when I say manipulating here, you know, manipulation is not always bad. There are incredibly creative things you can do, starting with a photo, applying the power of Photoshop or Lightroom and others. So we're in Photoshop. You'll see other products coming out in 2023 across those different verticals. Um, and this year we launched an open source suite of tools uh, at contentauthenticity.org, opensource.contentauthenticity.org for listeners who might be interested. And the idea there was to make sure that the very same code running in Photoshop shipping with Creative Cloud products is available to anyone who wishes to implement the idea behind digital content provenance. There are command line tools, there's a library. Um, and you know, lastly, I'll say just a few weeks ago at Adobe Max this year, 2022, um, we announced partnerships with Nikon and Leica. So the same technology and the same open source code running in hardware on these iconic camera models that are used by professionals um, every day. So very excited about the traction so far. There's a lot more to do, but in you know what I would say is a three years or so that has rushed by for the team, we've accomplished quite a lot. Yeah, but also the integration in, is that truly in the camera or is it in the software that offloads the pictures? It is. So one of the cameras, I won't say which, uh, demonstrated this with a firmware update. Um, and that's yeah. the idea, frankly, the idea to compromise security a tiny bit in order to increase the likelihood of adoption quickly, meaning a firmware upgrade, turning your camera into a content authenticity aware device. Um, the other manufacturer is doing this deep at the hardware level for uh, inscrutable uh, uh, sort of, you know, the best possible security. Um, Amazing. So, so the whole supply chain of that piece of content, it really at the place where it starts, uh, has exactly. provenance or, yeah, it, wow, it, it's mind-blowing where we can take this off coming, let's say, decade. I agree. I agree. Well, before we dive into the state of trust in the world now, um, what made Adobe the logical place um, for the guy to be born or to uh, ignite? Yeah, it's a great question. And when I started this project, um, I used to say, there's no better place. I don't think there's anywhere that would provide a better home for this idea. And that was kind of theoretical. Yeah. Um, but I can tell you in the you know intervening three years, it's really become the fact. Uh, my attitude has not changed one bit. The reason is, um, you know, Adobe inhabits this very uh, important middle ground where we are providing tools to creators, right? We're not building social media networks, although we do have Behance, but that's a community for creators. It's not a Facebook or a, a Google. Um, and furthermore, you know, these uh, powerful tools are expected by creators. That idea of Adobe magic is, hey, I need to be able to do my job faster, more efficiently, need to monetize my work uh, better in a, in a more efficient way. And that requires incredible tools for creativity. And those same incredible tools, as we said earlier, um, can be used to deceive. Um, so number one, I would say Adobe is very well positioned because we have this middle ground where we're providing tools um, and trust uh, tools are a very important part of the trust ecosystem. Um, but in addition, it's expected, right? Because these powerful tools for creativity, sometimes using AI, increasingly using AI, um, sometimes using generative tools, they have to be used responsibly and our, our users expect that. So 
there's a commercial interest, although no revenue for the CAI for Adobe, there's a commercial interest in empowering people to be responsible. So who better to empower good actors to do the right thing than Adobe who provides the tools that they use every day. And then when it comes to the misinformation ecosystem, we have a, a deep abiding interest from our CEO, Shantanu Narayan, on down, uh, one of our executive champions in, in, in addition to Scott Belsky, chief product officer, is Dana Rao, our chief trust officer. Um, and Dana's had a vision since, since before I joined Adobe of finding important things where Adobe can apply this responsibility, but also reify it in code. Like don't just talk about these things, but actually put it to work in working applications and working code. And now with the culmination of open source uh, for others to use. So those aspects together make this, um, I would say, not only a good place to investigate and pursue authenticity, but I would say the best place to pursue it. And I'm very proud to be part of it. Amazing. And how about you personally? Because uh, when I checked out your resume, it was mainly CTO uh, positions at commercial companies. Is this a less commercial uh, venture you're part of or what makes the, the fit for you? Yeah, it is a bit of a change. You're right. That's a good observation from my resume. Um, you know, many of my prior pursuits, again, have been in the interest of helping uh, creative professionals. And there are lots of kinds of creative professionals. I mentioned music and photography, but in publishing, um, education designers, there are lots of um, aspects of creativity to be brought to many things that we see in our everyday lives and use. Um, and those tools also have to be outfitted to help people be more efficient, do more, monetize better, et cetera. Um, you know, my focus has always been on helping those creative professionals do better. And I think there's really, there are a few motivations for something like authenticity and a more trusted web. And one of them is capitalistic, right? If there can be an ecosystem of startups that I have pretty vast experience running, founding, raising money for, um, that's a really good motivation. Like if there's money to be made, or capitalistic motivations to be applied, we wanna make sure that we engender those. And that's part of the open source effort is to make sure that companies can build and thrive based on the open source code that we've released. So I think on the resume and in writing, it looks like a bit of a pivot for me, but um, when I think about this during quiet times over a cup of coffee, uh, it really is a natural progression because Adobe provides the ecosystem and the environment in which we can be creative, but also produce running products that actually impact people's lives and livelihoods every day. Um, and again, although this is not a revenue producing project, I feel more urgency now at Adobe than I did running my own companies with investors on the board because the world needs this. Um, and I feel a, a great and grave responsibility to help provide it and solve these problems. And quickly for the listener, why is open source important for restoring trust? Well, at the end of the day, um, as you know, and I'm sure many of your listeners know, the worst way to engender security of any kind is through obfuscation. So it's not acceptable. And I think, you know, lots of the world's developers and companies know this now to say, this is secure because I say it's secure. The only way you know something is secure is to actually interrogate, understand, and read source code. Source code being the beating heart of how something works. And at the end of the day, you know, if I say you should trust me or you should trust a process that's running on a server somewhere on your phone, the only way to really know if that's trustworthy um, at the end of the day is to look at the code and judge for yourself. And if nothing else, the Content Authenticity Initiative and its underlying standard, the C2PA, is about transparency, right? We're not necessarily telling people what to trust or how to trust. And in the trusted web, you know, I have a deep abide, abiding vision that this is the path forward is to provide transparency so that people can make up their own minds. And what better way to make up your own mind about the initiative 
than to look at the source code. And again, you know, you can trust me when I say that this is the exact same code running in Photoshop. Um, and that's a very powerful statement. And furthermore, it enables people to shortcut this. You know, it's one thing to read a hundred page spec full of esoteric details about other standards. And that's, there's, that's a form of openness. But I think the most impactful form of openness is to say, don't build this on your own. Take this open source um, code from Adobe or others that doesn't require any kind of licensing and put it to work in your own products and your own business and let us take care of some of the details. Yeah, perfect. There's no better way. It's uh, verifiably by design. It's uh, yeah, the way to go. That's right. uh, state of trust in the world today. How would you describe it? Uh, that's such a tough question. I mean, I think um, we have to start with the definition of trust and I won't get to uh, bogged down in the semantics. But, you know, at the end of the day, trust is between people and organizations, not machines and code and uh, generative models. So we need to find ways to trust each other more. And in some ways, the anonymity, the pseudonymity that the web uh, creates for us, which is powerful and important, especially in human rights situations where you want to be able to report and provide truth and storytelling on the ground in places like Ukraine and others, um, at the same time, uh, we need to balance that with trustable sources and trustable software. And at the end of the day, not the publisher, but the people who work at the publisher provide the publishing means and the people who develop the software, not the software itself. So I think we are playing catch up right now, to be honest with you, Sebastian. Um, we have a lot of work to do to help consumers understand what trust means on the web, right? Because you don't see the person you're interacting with. You don't see the person behind the Twitter handle. Um, you may not know Elon Musk or other you know, leaders of social media companies or understand what they stand for. So we've got to derive trust um, from mathematics, number one, cryptography. And behind the cryptography, at the end of the day, what you're trying to prove is that someone is responsible for a statement or a copyright or um, vouching for the truth of what is depicted in a piece of content. That's what I'm working on. I think that's a small piece. It's not the totality of the solution, but provenance, understanding where things came from, how they were made, who made them in cases where that makes sense, is uh, kind of the bedrock and the foundation of a future of improved trust. So I think all is not lost at the moment to answer your question directly, but we have a lot of work to do um, to catch up with the pace of innovation around creating things that are not true. Yeah, I, I fully agree. And um, on a really practical level, the things uh, you're working on, what does it look like? Is it the thing that the end user sees or uh, what happens uh, under the hood? Can you unpack that for the listener? Yeah, of course. Delighted to. And I'll go into a little bit of detail and feel free to probe more if you think that your listeners are interested in specific aspects. I'll double check. Um, yeah. Yeah, so the, the idea behind the Content Authenticity Initiative um, is number one, let's provide that open source and open standard. So we created in 2021 an open standards body, not run by Adobe, um, but in the Linux Foundation, run under the auspices of Linux Foundation bylaws. Uh, and that's a true consortium of about 50 companies, um, six or seven on the steering committee, Adobe being one of those. And what we're doing there is producing technical standards um, on top of which products and open source will be built. The kind of overarching idea behind this standard is that trust comes from digital signatures. Um, so you asked about the state of trust. I think digital signatures are relatively unassailable trust signal, meaning if you or one of your customers has signed something using some private information, some secret information they only have, 
it's knowable that they did this thing, right? That they were the ones using Photoshop or that Photoshop is the proper, you know, Adobe's vouching for the fact that Photoshop is a legitimate version of Photoshop and it's doing the right thing, implementing the details. So, you know, to zoom up a level, how does this work? Uh, there is UI. It's critical that there be some kind of user experience. So number one, people understand what they're doing. In some cases, if you wish to exercise the full complement of CAI features, you may express your identity. And we don't want people to be uh, doing that unwittingly, right? It can put people in danger. Um, you can express details, including GPS. We want to make sure that GPS isn't captured in a cryptographically verifiable way where a photojournalist or a video journalist could be put in harm's way. So this is opt-in. Uh, it's important that people have a user experience where they can see what they're doing and understand why they're doing it. And then on the consumer end, um, I can tell you in Photoshop, for example, Photoshop user who brings in a content authenticity enabled asset will see that that thing has authenticity data and can see what information will be carried forward. So if you make an asset and I use it, let's say you're a photographer, I bring your photograph into Photoshop, I'll see that you are the photographer if you cared to share that. And I'll see some basic content authenticity kind of bedrock items like a timestamp uh, and a thumbnail of what this looked like when it came into Photoshop so that I can compare it with what came out of Photoshop. And then as I move through my Photoshop process, I can choose to share detailed categorical edits. Uh, my downstream consumers may be interested in knowing that AI tools were used or not. Um, and I may wish to take credit for this. So I'll attach my identity to it. And then the user interface that an end consumer outside of Photoshop on a publisher site or on a social media site would see is an icon. Again, we're not saying trust this media. We're saying there's more information here. And if you wish to know what that information is, just click on this icon or tap here or look over here in the metaverse. So there are kind of those three levels of disclosure. Um, and we think over time, this is a new type of media literacy where people will be compelled to expect provenance and that when they wish to take a look at it, that they'll be able to um, to see what someone chose to capture. Uh, and again, this is not the solution to trust on the web, but it's a really critical foundational pillar um, that we think is required. Yeah, it's a very important building block for trust. Absolutely. And is it, for example, in will it be a browser plugin or uh, how can I envision, how, how do people see it? Is it the thing that new sites will show yeah, so you know, over time, the goal is not to have this be implemented in every web app and every mobile app and every Apple Watch app, but instead to have it down closer to the metal at the operating system level. So browsers, it will take you know some time for browser vendors to incorporate this, but that's why having it be a standard, maybe destined for W3C or other standards organizations um, who will fully uh, ratify it. Um, it, it should be in browsers. It should be part of the bare metal of browsers. The trust ecosystem around SSL certificates, which many of your listeners will be familiar with, is the yeah. thing that the block. You know that that provides some sort of trust. I'm not sure everybody knows what it means and what it doesn't mean, but it does indicate that the channel between you and the party receiving your information is secure by some definition of secure. Yeah. And we want this to be, you know, the same something people understand to a reasonable degree. Um, and again, these are trust signals. So trust signals should appear in browsers. Right now, the state of the art today is that there are many applications and startups implementing content authenticity, and you'll see it in their applications. Um, we have partners like SmartFrame and PixelStream. And if you go to the content authenticity website, you'll see lots of case studies and examples. We've studied yeah. this with writers and the New York Times and others. And each of those applications will reveal something in their native UX language to their users, but it's all predicated on capturing provenance uh, at the moment something is made. Yeah, and uh, of course, the, all the links will be added in the show notes where you can see the use cases of the initiative and uh, the open source thing you mentioned, of course. Um, does it have to do anything with 
blockchain that's a word that often pops up when people discuss trust or uh yeah is there where do do those areas touch each other and uh yeah how could they strengthen each other or is there a risk yeah so i think this is a great question i get it all the time as you can imagine um yeah. You know, if we wipe away kind of the hype of blockchain, which is um, not a vilification of blockchain in any way, it is the idea that a new promising technology always has a hype cycle, right? And I think we're yeah. probably just over the peak of the hype cycle around blockchain. Blockchain is a fascinating technology. Um, it provides a new kind of immutability that's decentralized. And, you know, I think we could spend a whole other podcast talking about decentralization, where it makes sense and where it doesn't make sense. I think in the dust settling around NFTs and some of the things that you could argue were overhyped in the last year or two, um, there remains this fascinating technology around decentralization where you might sacrifice some performance for the idea that there are many nodes in a network. You know, there, there are some new ideas here, but again, blockchain is many years old. There were peer-to-peer -peer yeah. networks before it, and we've kind of seen this play out before. In the trust ecosystem that the CAI subscribes to, um, decentralization may turn out to be very important. So the standard doesn't require it. You know, we're relying ultimately on decades old uh, PKI, public key infrastructure using X509 certificates. Why? Two reasons. One is it's proven, uh, you know, this is the technology that banks and governments and, uh, you know, companies of all kinds use to protect uh, their assets. Um, and second, because uh, there are new technologies, but we want to be very careful about adopting them too soon. So to answer your question more directly, yes, there is an overlap between blockchain so uh, and the CAI. We rely on timestamps, for example, um, yeah. which is something you, know, you and, and WordProof obviously know very well, right? A timestamp is a uh, trusted time that is signed at the time that it's issued. So you can verify it. You can understand the lifetime of the certificate used to sign it, all these important aspects that make it trustworthy. That piece yeah. of data has to be extremely trustworthy. You don't have to re rely on a, a centralized timestamp authority, as they're called, a TSA, to provide those. Blockchain can provide that. Furthermore, blockchain can provide this immutable proof of existence. However, what we have to be careful about with blockchain and CI overlap is that there can be information shared uh, in a trust context that you may not want to share, that you may want to redact. For example, that photojournalist um, use case that we spoke about earlier, where somebody might be in danger if their identity is shown or something about their device is shown or GPS, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, need to make sure that in cases where it's absolutely required, although they may be rare, they're absolutely essential, that that data can be redacted. And in the standard that we're putting forward, there is a redaction mechanism which allows data to be pulled out of the provenance trail without breaking the cryptographic chain of trust. Um, we leave evidence that something was redacted. You can even provide a reason for which it was redacted. But blockchains don't provide this very essential um, CAI kind of core idea. Um, and the reason is data on a blockchain is immutable. And there's a lot of like great characteristics about that, but there are some that don't quite um, don't quite align. So, you know, in short, I would say blockchain is could be extremely important for those proofs of existence. Know that something was there to expect provenance and yeah. to provide no reliance whatsoever on anybody's cloud, but on a public blockchain. Absolutely essential. And we've done those experiments. This is not just lip service. We've worked with the Starling Foundation at Stanford University. Um, we've done some projects where there's CAI data in the file, but that can be stripped out. That's metadata. And then those proofs of existence and some aspects of essential timestamps and others are actually stored permanently on a public blockchain or um, something like Filecoin, where some of the data itself is stored in a decentralized, truly immutable fashion. So there's a balance between permanence and uh, flexibility 
neither of which compromises trust, but we have to strike that correct balance. And for that reason, there's always going to be a piece of standard, you know, decades old public public key cryptography. Yeah. But I think you can marry it with blockchain technologies and you'll see some startups doing that without violating the specification in any way. In fact, we provide guidance about how to apply blockchain in the ways I just described in more detail. Um, and it's going to be a, an interesting you know, year or two to see where the prevailing kind of uh, approaches to marrying blockchain and CAI um, uh, authenticity end up. But it's a very fertile time to explore this stuff. And again, not definitionally part of the C2PA standard, but a very important consideration that we're looking at. Wonderful. And um, without going too much into technicalities, is it possible to guarantee, for example, with the Leica of the Nikon integration, that information hasn't been manipulated um, without a blockchain timestamp? Is, is, is there a way to prove that you didn't tamper information? There is. And this, again, comes back to um, standard certificate technology. So it's important, um, and this is something you can't do on the internet at large necessarily, it's important to make sure that these technologies can work offline. But we also, we can't rewrite the laws of physics, right? If you're not online and you can't fetch a trusted timestamp from somewhere, you have to rely on some local information. And that, to some degree, that may be considerable. We have to be careful about understanding the level of trust that we can imbue in um, a certificate that happens to be stored locally. Um, but there is an interesting compromise that we think is accretive to the whole ecosystem in a camera scenario where you could have a short-lived certificate that comes from a server. You want to rotate these things on a regular basis so we don't have like a, you know, an ecosystem-wide um, hack possibility. But you can also install a longer-lived certificate so that offline shooting is possible. And when you don't have a timestamp locally, you can fetch it either from a blockchain or from a centralized timestamp authority. You know, I want to um, urge listeners not to ascribe too much doom and gloom to the timestamp authority. This has been in use for decades. Your browser uses it every second of every day. Um, governments run them, private enterprises run them, and we rely on them quite a bit. And there are um, you know, human trust networks in place to make sure that these things are not co-opted or used for uh, for deleterious purposes or to cause harm. So there's a lot of information out there in the ecosystem that we'll make use of. And when better examples of those things like timestamps are available, we'll embrace those as well. But it is important that this work offline, online, you can imagine in some of the most critical information capture storytelling experience with those journalists in totalitarian regimes or, you know, documenting abuses and make sure they can shoot offline, right? They may not have access to the internet for days or weeks or months. Um, so this is another important compromise that we afford. Yeah, and uh, specifically on the Web3 or blockchain space, where do you see it go in the coming, let's say, five years or so? Will every piece of content or image be an NFT with um, uh, with the guy part being part of it or wh where do you see it go yeah the nft ecosystem is interesting and i think we we bring something really interesting to it so as you and your listeners may know you know an nft despite its you know great power for paying secondary royalties and things like that to help monetize assets at the end of the day it's nothing more than a receipt right it isn't the asset itself and the connection between the asset itself on IPFS, despite a hash, is pretty tenuous, right? You have the receipt and you have the asset that could live anywhere. And that asset, even if it lives on a blockchain-powered thing like Filecoin or IPFS, um, the asset can appear anywhere. So the question is, how do you actually immutably connect that asset, the actual digital good, which could be a video game asset or a JPEG or a video, to the receipt? 
And we think there are two kinds of provenance. One is sort of the financial provenance. Who owns this thing? Think of it, the word provenance comes from the art world, right? Who has owned this? What did they pay for it? That kind of thing. Um, and then the provenance of the actual asset itself, which is who made it, what creative uh, processes were applied, was it manipulated? Um, and once you have tamper-proof evidence associated with the asset, is there a way to connect that to the NFT representing it? And the answer is yes, right? We can capture certain aspects at minting time. And we did this in partnership with OpenSea and Rarible and a couple of other marketplaces. Um, and this is still live. You can read about it uh, in the Photoshop help ecosystem. Um, the answer is yes. Like no matter where that asset goes, you can tie it back to its financial provenance because you basically have this two-way binding, not a one-way binding that associates the NFT with the underlying asset. So um, I think the NFT ecosystem will be important in terms of permanent um, marriage, a permanent marriage of the economic provenance. Again, where did this go? Who owned it? and the asset provenance. What is this? How was it made? How might it have been manipulated? So I don't know if NFTs will become a critical part of the CAI approach. Um, I do think blockchain underwriting trust in a decentralized way likely will. Um, that doesn't necessarily de depend on NFTs. It does depend on hashes of important information, even zero knowledge proofs to appear on a blockchain so that there's no centralized authority controlling the trust network. Um, so again, as I said before, the connection or the marriage of cryptographic certainty coming from CAI and public key infrastructure and digital signatures connected to proofs of existence or proofs of changes uh, that can be stored on blockchain, again, without uh, compromising that guarantee that information can be redacted when necessary. Yeah. And how would that work, the whole flow of information? So there's a picture from a camera, then there's the Photoshop, and then there's a uh, probably the Associated Press, and then there's a news outlet. Will every stakeholder add something to the metadata or how does that work practically? Yeah, good question. I should have mentioned this earlier when I was giving a, a quick technical overview. So um, the CAI chain of provenance is a chain. Every bit of provenance data that's added is connected back to the prior set of hashes and digital signatures. And in fact, if you were to bring in something in a composite scenario, like a video editing scenario or a Photoshop scenario where using several photographs and maybe even some synthetically generated media to make a work of art, each one of those components, or as we call them in CAI parlance, ingredients, carries with it its own provenance trail, right? So if you made something and it was remixed a thousand times, each of those thousand resulting assets would have your copyright or your name imprinted or the fact that you use Photoshop or you know whatever Photoshop competitor you're using. Um, so those are those are kind of key core characteristics. Um, and in the case of a news flow, yes, from the camera to the editing suite, and again, video, audio, still images, metaverse, 3D objects, all of these uh, can carry the, the CI digital signature and asset manifest as we call it. Every step along that change from capture to editing to publish would add additional data. Even the CDN, the content delivery network that eventually delivers your content to a WordPress blog or the Associated Press collection or the New York Times front page or what have you, each of those would um, add an additional bit to the chain of provenance and carry with it the digital signature of the, the tool used to produce that manifest or the publisher in the case of you know, the BBC, for example, one of the C2PA and CAI partners. Um, it's important for uh, brand attribution that if you see something that purports to have come from the BBC, you should be able to cryptographically know that it did come from the BBC. And that requires a signature, sort of a last mile signature, as I call it, saying the JPEG was resized, resampled, but the most important part of that is that the BBC is vouching for it. And at the end of the day, again, if you trust the BBC's sourcing methods, 
that's very powerful. Even if you don't know what camera was used, um, if you trust the BBC and its uh, information integrity policies, knowing provably that it came from that publisher is very important. So yes, there's a chain, but we get tremendous value, I think, in the trust ecosystem and the trust on the web if we simply have one of those signatures at the end. Yeah, and uh, fully agree. And how does the identification part work? So is there a uh, kind of an identity provider you're working with to assure that it's the BBC setting it with a chamber of commerce or how does that identity link work? Yeah, there are a couple of different ways. Um, and sometimes standards can fall victim to a consensus-based mentality. We've been very careful not to have 30 different ways to capture identity because identity, as you know, is one of the most confusing aspects of the future of trust on the web. For sure. Um, there are lots of burgeoning standards. There are lots of historical standards. There are lots of attempts um, to trust via um, sort of transient connections between people, you know, PGP, GPG, things that never really got a foothold in email and other scenarios. And then you have SSL, which again, I think provides very uh, immutable, understandable guarantees, but people don't necessarily understand what exactly that lock icon in the browser represents all the time. So in order to um, split the difference and provide the right identity guarantees, there are a couple of ways. Number one, uh, just like in a browser, there are extended validation certificates. So the signing certificate can carry with it the identity, the verified identity of an individual or an organization. Um, there's another way called verifiable credentials, uh, which is a new standard very quickly being adopted across the digital wallet ecosystem uh, and many providers of, for example, COVID proofs of vaccination, even state IDs uh, in states like Estonia, um, the EU with the EIDA standards beginning to provide actual digital IDs that are provable that can be government issued or issued by you know, different kinds of parties. So if you have an expert um, ecosystem for publishers, for example, that wish to issue these credentials, they can do that with or without tying it to the digital signature. And you know, we won't go into the details of how verifiable credentials are verified and issued, but effectively you have an issuer, a holder and a verifier. So what we're thinking about and doing in the standard that you can read about is embedding verifiable credentials inside these content authenticity blocks or manifests so that multiple identities can be captured. Um, we're in a, an ecosystem and a world of collaboration. So I think it calls into question, you know, what copyright and ownership even is. If you and I work on something together and our third partner is a generative AI algorithm, uh, we need to understand what those things are. So identity becomes very interesting and even more essential. So again, two ways, through the digital signature associated with an identity or through a verifiable credential, which can be verified by any number of parties. Yeah, and in that way, content can truly reflect the governance or how it yeah, started to exist or which is- That's right. And it's important to note, there won't be just one of those trust providers, right? In the same way that you know verifiable credentials can be provided by New York State, where I live, uh, by your country, by uh, an ecosystem of artists, for example. You know, is yeah. Sebastian part of this collective? The collective itself can verify your membership in a collective or an NFT uh, art marketplace or those kinds of things. So no centralized single source of identity, but the identity source that matters in the context where you're viewing the, the material. Yeah, which could be universities or whatever. It could, yeah, That's across right. all of them. One of the things we're working on a lot is presenting the information or the trust information in our case often from a blockchain uh, but yeah it, it's applicable in many places 
not only to people or the receiver of information, but especially to the big tech, to the search engines, to the social media platforms, because over 70% of all content exploration happens there. Right. What what role and I, what role is there for big tech companies to adopt uh, or enhance adopting of technologies like the things we're working on? Yeah, I think there's a huge role, a critical role, frankly, if you look at the membership in the Content Authenticity Initiative and participation in the standards drafting, um, you'll see the notable absence of big social media players. I want to be very upfront about that. So these conversations are in progress. They continue. It takes a long time to make a sea change like this when it comes to content provenance. This is a really new concept. Um, and people reasonably at those companies are going to take their time understanding it, uh, poking holes in it adopting it, piloting it, all those kinds of things. But it is going to be absolutely critical for social media companies anywhere where you can encounter content and the means by which you encounter it, as you said, by search, whether it's a stock photo agency or a news site or a search engine, um, it's going to be very important to have this data indexed. So, you know, we've been very careful about not encrypting data inside the CAI manifest. And the reason for that is to make sure it's accessible. You may have to run some code to do some verification. You don't want to index data that's not verified in any way, because that sort of pollutes the notion of what trust even means here. Um, you know, I find something, but then I have to go find out for myself if the data that led me to that asset is even legitimate. So we want to make sure that uh, there are means and uh, examples of verification at the speed of search engines. And there's a performance impact to verifiable media on the web or anywhere else, you know, in constrained uh, scenarios with mobile phones or even 5G or 6G or whatever comes next. There's always going to be a tax to pay, whether it's data payload side, which which can be very small in the case of CAI or performance around verifying media at the scale of a Google, you know, billions of images per day on Instagram, those kinds of things. So we'll take very careful steps to prove out that this is possible. I'm very, very confident that it is, but it will take some time. And I think the the search engine players are absolutely essential here because the only way to achieve the media literacy I touched on briefly earlier is to have the content authenticity icon or whatever it turns out to be, to be ubiquitous. Wherever you find content, you should expect this kind of provenance, even if it's just a timestamp. And when I say just, I mean, again, timestamp may be the most important piece of provenance mm. that we encounter uh, on a daily basis. Yeah, but for the same for identity, if you can see, hey, this really came from someone who was there or from a doctor or it, it really enhances the trustworthiness and the verifiability of trustworthiness of the information, of course. Yeah, and I think there's also a fairness aspect, right? People who create things for a living, again, back to kind of enabling yeah. creator ecosystems, should get credit for their work. Yeah. Um, they, you know, it should be understandable where something came from, who made it, how it was made in context where that's necessary. And when you're working on a marketing campaign, it could be very necessary to understand if content is licensable, usable, um, what competition is required for the creator, the agency that made it. And that data can all be captured and expressed uh, in content authenticity manifests. And, you know, we, we hope to see that in the coming years. Yeah. And it, it would be great if it can impact ranking, for example, if it's more transparent or more accountable, it ranks higher than, and you're providing a perfect infrastructure for, uh, changes like that, which will, yeah, it's how important is media literacy from your, is that the most important thing or, um, yeah, how important is media literacy? Well, I think first and foremost, on the order of importance, you know, kind of 
oversimplified for sure. Um, there's kind of a stack, right? There's building a technology, designing a technology that's viable at those massive internet scales, performant, et cetera. I think we've done that. I think we've proven that this can scale, that it works, that the minor taxes paid in file size or kind of verifiable uh, compute cycles, um, those are, the, the technology works. Second is prove that people want it. And we're proving that. I would say that's in progress, right? Adoption, bringing down all the barriers around licensing technology. There are none, open standard, open source. Uh, we're seeing a, a broad, vibrant ecosystem develop. And the third is for consumers to understand what this is. And I would say more importantly, to understand what it is not. If you see something that is verifiable, you know, what is verifiable? You know, can I guarantee that a picture I take uh, that appears on the front page of my favorite news outlet or on Twitter, which might be my favorite news outlet, um, if that depicts someone being harmed, can I guarantee that that actually happened? No, of course not, right? We cannot guarantee the veracity of the thing that is depicted, but we can guarantee the details around how it was made, where it was made, who made it, what equipment was used, and things that provide transparency. And for that reason, media literacy, um, you know, I would say has a very important role to play around what this transparency data is for, how to use it. So, you know, we're working on that at Adobe. We have um, a gentleman in charge of uh, content authenticity, education and advocacy. And part of his role, he's a photojournalist himself, has been wounded in, in on the battlefront um, and has run a uh, photo for the Associated Press for many years. His name is Santiago Lyon, one of my good friends on the initiative. Um, and part of his role is to make sure that we're educating young people in the most optimal way. And that means, again, you know, gone are the days already where you could look at something that may have been generated. This person does not exist.com, for example, look at their ears and see if the earrings are aligned or not. Um, things are moving at such a pace that media that is completely generated and conjured from the ether is pretty much indistinguishable, at least in still images, soon video and audio and others. So we have to you know, teach people how to use these trust signals to understand what content is. There's really no other way forward. Detection is not a winning battle. Uh, trusting our eyes and ears is not uh, the path forward, but verifying data that is known to be verifiable and transparent is the way forward. And I think we all, you know, not just young people, um, our parents and grandparents and wives and spouses uh, all need uh, a lesson in how to use these trust signals because it's not obvious. For sure. And um, what there's uh, another stakeholder and it's policymakers. Can we, what would you, what, what, what should their role be? Should they make it mandatory to implement stuff like this um, or is it purely a role for the market? How do you see that? I think um, <clears throat> to be honest with you, there is probably a role for legislation here, um, if only to accelerate the pace of adoption. I would like to you know, think that big tech can regulate itself. I think historically, know that in, historically we know that that's not always the case. Um, and in cases where you know people can be harmed by, for example, non-consensual intimate imagery, I think there is a very important role for legislators. You know, when children are at risk, or you know, women in particular are impacted heavily by deepfake pornography and things of that nature. Um, there are places where mandating or requiring digital provenance, I think, are warranted. Um, I won't pretend to be a policy expert. I know these kinds of things in various legislatures around the world are fraught with competing concerns. Um, but I do think, you know, this is all foundationally based on the idea that there is one standard. And if there is legislation to be brought uh, to these problems, 
there should be one digital provenance standard to reach for that legislators are aware of. So we do a fair amount of educating and talking and speaking publicly on podcasts like this one about what this is, what it's for, what problems it solves, so that if the time comes for legislation, um, it can be applied in the most uh, beneficial way for those communities who need it. Wonderful. And um, can you, of course, you can't say all the names, but you said you're talking to search engines, social media platforms, and some of them are missing. Um, what we learned is for search engines, it's more beneficial to enhance trust than for some social media platforms, as there's more of a business model around misinformation, disinformation for social media platforms and not for search engines. What do you expect in adoption from the big tech players? Uh, I mean, I'm very confident that you'll see adoption everywhere it matters. The trick in answering your question is when, right? I can't give you a time frame for that. And I would say the more impactful the search engine or the social media company or the news outlet, the more rigorous they're going to be in their examination as they should be. So while I'm confident that rigorous examination of this technology and this approach will result in adoption, I can't tell you when that adoption will result. But to your earlier point, I do think that Anywhere where you are starting the journey for finding the content, whether it's a news story or something to um, flesh out your understanding of a context in the real world or an image that you're licensing or what have you, um, search engines are going to be the entry point. And that's where media literacy is perhaps most important to understand, for example, if you could filter your search results or your social media feed to say, you know, I'm in news consumption mode right now. Don't show me anything that doesn't have provenance signals. And if something doesn't have those provenance signals, again, this will take time, then perhaps consumers should look at it with an eye of extra skepticism and say, it's very easy. Everybody else is doing this. Why doesn't this in my social media feed have a, a signal on it? Um, that's where we're headed. That's very important. And then you have you know, a broad ecosystem and set of players where market dynamics can take over. Um, but first, we have to establish that foundation. We need to make it expected for consumers. And that, you know, above all, that's the most important part of my role at Adobe on the CAI. Yeah, I can imagine. And um, Twitter being a launching partner of the initiative in 2019, uh, obviously changed ownership. We are recording on uh, December 19th. Is there a, still a special role for Twitter in the um, in the initiative or how, how is that relationship progressing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, authenticity is is necessary no matter who the owner of a private or public company is, right? The 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 motivations behind transparency are to provide um, a counterpoint to any particular person's motivations or ideas around censorship or freedom of speech or everything in between. So uh, it's critical. Um, I will not, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you, because of recent developments, we should say this is December 19th, 2022, just to yep. put this in historical context. Um, it's been quite a tumultuous time at Twitter, I think it's fair to say. Yeah. Uh, when things settle down and the future is more clear to Twitter and to its new owner, uh, I think content authenticity is no less important than it was when we first met up with Twitter in 2019, and pre probably more so. More so for private companies um, and even you know companies that have venture capital-based boards where folks making business decisions have their own motivations. I mean, we're all humans, right? This is not bad or good. It's neither. And for that yeah. reason, transparency is absolutely critical for Twitter and, and any company. And do you expect Twitter to be leading in uh, adopting? Because it could really align the vision of the new owner. Um, I can't tell you what my expectations are. My expectations and hopes are, uh, we can talk about my hopes. I, I can't really talk about my expectations, but 
you know, I certainly would hope that um, Twitter and others would use this opportunity to provide transparency. Again, not judgment about content, but transparency about what the content is. So that's certainly um, in our calculus. And I would hope that in a time frame that matters, you will see Twitter and others who are at the forefront of conversations about freedom of speech transparency and judgment um, to be adopters of authenticity. Wonderful. Uh, Andy, thanks so much for sharing so much insight in how the initiative works. And um, last question, and then I'll ask you if I forgot to ask something, but firstly, on a practical level and then on a vision level, what do you expect Firstly, what's kind of roadmap? When can we, from every content management system or from every, uh, expect to be using this? And secondly, what do you expect the state of trust to be by the end of this decade? Great questions. Well, now that I've dated us in 2022, December 2022, if I provide a prognostication about timing, your listeners will know exactly uh, how to hold me to account. And I welcome that. I think within three years, we look at a three-year time horizon um, for a couple of reasons. One, three years itself is pretty speculative given the state of generative AI and AI in general and the pursuit of certain companies providing um, really interesting paths forward for um, general AI, uh, you know, artificial general AI, companies like OpenAI and others. So I'm not going to go beyond three years because I really don't know. Um, Within three years, you will, I'm very confident, see this in the CMS systems that matter, uh, in news publishing systems and other publishing systems so that provenance data is carried along, um, enhanced along the way so that this transparency can be provided to end users. And perhaps most importantly, in more hardware, mobile handsets, you know, places where um, authenticity can really be generated by consumers. And as, you know, kind of the vaunted news uh, providers of yesteryear, begin to fall away in favor of everybody being a newscaster. Um, number one, trusted news sources and trusting information integrity companies, again, like the BBC. I, I think BBC is a good example of this. You know, we need to see uh, this kind of adoption everywhere, but also on the consumer side, generating media, consuming media. So I would say three years um, or so uh, will be kind of the time horizon for the platforms that matter here in this ecosystem of creation, publishing, consumption, um, to have this implemented. And, you know, a full one of those years might be implementation. In some cases, we're talking about big company bureaucracies with very um, fraught roadmaps that have a lot to do. So again, open source, maybe even services that startups will bring up uh, will help that be the case. The state of trust in 2030, um, much more speculative and out of my control. But once again, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll take the easy way, way out and tell you what I hope will happen. Um, you know, number one, we'll have a couple generations of uh, young people coming up in a system where the old definition of trust is no longer valid. Again, just knowing where something came from uh, based on no particular guaranteed verifiable signals is not good enough. Um, expecting transparency, seeing transparency and on the media literacy front, understanding that, you know, we all have a job to do here. We all have to question the media that we consume and understand what it is before we pass it along and share it before we bring it into the metaverse, you know, thinking forward to 2030 um, and before we teach, you know, our children and their children and, and others about, you know, history that's unfolding at a pace that I think is totally unprecedented in, in, in the history of humanity. So in 2030, I hope we'll have all those tools. And most importantly, once the tools are established, that human beings will understand how to use them 
And, you know, you asked me about 2030, I can't possibly imagine how tools of transparency will be used in 2030, but I can guarantee you that we'll all still be humans, we'll all still have the same emotional um, motivations that we've always had, and understanding who is trustworthy and what they've produced will be as important as it is now. Thanks so much for uh, all the answers and to the contribution as a whole to the space of trust, or yeah, not only the space of trust, but ultimately to the world, of course. And uh, any closing remarks before we end up? Well, I just want to thank you, Sebastian, for having me on. Um, been a fascinating conversation. I know you and I could talk about this, and I hope we will separately for many more hours. Yep. Um, you know, I would love to leave your listeners with a call to action, which is get involved. If you're all interested in the topic, um, you may not know how to get involved, but there's just about every you know walk of life if you're a developer, engineer, designer, interested party, uh, publisher, consumer, there are things you can do to help uh, make this vision that we've been talking about a reality. So please visit some of the links in the show notes, particularly contentauthenticity.org that will lead you to the C2PA standard and some of the case studies we've run. You know, at the end of the day, most important thing is that people understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. And beyond that, there are lots of ways to participate and help bring this vision to reality. So please take a look, get in touch. I'm very available. Um, and I look forward to interacting, Sebastian, with you and, and your listeners further. Perfect. Yeah, thanks so much. And I can fully approve what you're saying there. It's very well documented. Links will be in the show notes. There's a reason why we're Proven Trust Web signed up uh, to be members. And uh, yeah, get involved. Andy, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed it as well. If you uh, go to detrustedweb.org slash podcast, you'll find the other episodes, you find educational materials, you find other use cases, all on building a trusted web. It's all available there and of course for free. detrustedweb.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and therefore being part of the trusted web journey. And let's build the trusted web together.